Chapter 23 On the German Republic of Impostors The Natural History of Deception Quoting Bertolt Brecht's Tagebücher from 1920 to 1922 Ogre says they think of it this way The clever ones live off the stupid ones and the stupid from their labour If one wanted to write a social history of mistrust in Germany, then above all the Weimar Republic would draw attention to itself. Fraud and expectations of being defrauded became epidemic in it. In those years it proved to be an omnipresent risk of existence that from behind all solid illusions the untenable and chaotic emerged. A revolution took place in those deep regions of collective feeling toward life in which the ontology of everyday life was laid out. A dull feeling of the instability of things penetrated into souls. A feeling of lack of substance, of relativity, of accelerated change, and of involuntary floating from transition to transition. This softening of the feeling for what is reliable ends in a collectively dispersed rage of anxiety against modernity. For this is the epitome of states of affairs in which everything appears only so-so and is disposed toward change. Out of this anxious rage, a readiness is easily formed to turn away from this incommodious state of the world and to remould the hate against it into a yes to socio-political and ideological movements that promise the great simplification and the most energetic return to quote-unquote substantial and reliable states of affairs. Here, the problem of ideology approaches us from a, so to speak, psycho-economic direction. Fascism and its side currents were, after all, viewed philosophically, in large part, movements of simplification but that precisely the town criers of the new simplicity good, evil, friend, foe, front, identity, bond for their part had gone through the modern nihilist school of artfulness, bluff and deception that was to become clear to the masses much too late. The quote-unquote solutions that sounded so simple positiveness, the new stability the new essentialness and security. They are but structures that, under the surface, are even more complicated than the complicatedness of modern life against which they must resist. For they are defensive, reactive formations, composed of modern experiences and denials of the same. Anti-modernity is possibly more modern and complex than what it rejects. In any case, it is gloomier, blunter, more brutal and more cynical. In such an insecure world, the imposter grew into a character type of the times par excellence. Cases of fraud, deception, misleading, breach of promise, charlatanism, and so forth, multiplied not only in a numerical sense. The imposter also became an indispensable figure in the sense of collective self-reassurance, a model of the times and a mythical template. With a view toward the imposter, the need to clarify this ambiguous life in which continually everything came out differently from the way it was intended, was accommodated in the most favourable way. In the imposter one found the compromise between the feeling of the times that everything was becoming too complicated and the need for simplification. If one already no longer saw through the great whole 
and this chaos of money, interests, parties, ideologies and so on. Then, in the individual case, one could nevertheless get an overview of the game of facade and background. If one looked on as the defrauder went through his masked game, then this reassured one in the feeling that the real world must also be in the vein of such roleplay, especially where one achieves the least clarity. Thus, the imposter became the existentially most important and most understandable symbol for the chronic crisis of complexity of modern consciousness. To analyse individual phenomena would be a study in itself. One would have to speak of Thomas Mann's Felix Krull and his real-life prototype, the ingenious deceiver, dreamer, grand seigneur and hotel thief, Manolescu, an elegant young Romanian who held Europe in suspense with his criminal acts of bravado and his increasingly daring confidence tricks, and who in addition wrote two volumes of memoirs in which literary swindle was added to his criminal acts. One would have to speak of the unforgettable Captain von Kupenick, the classic plebeian imposter's comedy, with whose dramatic narration Karl Zuckmeier triumphed in 1931 on the Weimar stage. In the same trade, the false Hohenzollern prince Harry Domella also made an attempt by putting the aristocratic sycophancy of Prussian reactionary snobs to the test, and who likewise, in 1927, immortalised himself in his memoirs. Even the enumeration and description of the most important affairs of swindle and deception from that time would fill a thick book. It would show that deception had become an industry, and that the expectation of being deceived, in the double sense as readiness to let oneself be deceived, and as mistrust that someone would try to pull the wool over one's eyes, had become a universal state of consciousness. They were years of the collective dawning of an illusion in whose twilight the one side saw their chances to make a career of deceptions and promises, and the others let their readiness for an illusion become so starkly visible that the active side only had to do what the passive side expected. Modernity establishes itself in people's minds in the form of a permanent training in seduction and simultaneous mistrust. In 1923, inflation in Germany reached its peak. The state, which let its printing presses run hot without ever having any backing, was thereby itself caught in the role of the grand deceiver, even if it was not drawn to account since nobody could take legal action against loss through inflation. In this year, a small Leipzig company published a booklet entitled Die Psychologie des Hochstaplers, The Psychology of the Imposter. Its author was Dr. Eric Wolfen, a humanistically educated person with many interests. A former public prosecutor from Dresden, Wolfen had devoted himself to pursuing the scientific fight against crime, criminology, even into the psychocultural preconditions of crime. In his chats, a new science took shape, quote-unquote, cultural criminology. Wolfen provided a psychopathology of everyday life for the daily use of public prosecutors and officers of the law. He himself placed, with the title Criminal Psychologist, beside Lombroso and Gross. 
His booklet, as innocent and humorous as it pretends to be, reads like a police anthropology of the 20s. Here, everything is revealed by someone for whom deception, because of his profession, comprises half his life, and if one also includes the exposure, then his whole life. The origins of deception, according to Wolfen, lie in the drive structure of human beings. Namely, nature has given human beings an inherent instinct for secrecy and dissimulation that aids the general drive for self-preservation. But traces of deception can also be found even in non-human domain. Bears, apes, horses and other creatures have been caught dissimulating. Thus the quote, beginnings of the psychology of the imposter, end quote, page 7, are present even in the brains of lower animals. In human beings such beginnings have unfolded in a specific way. Children are born deceivers. They drive to play. Their talent for apparent lies, their capacity for imitation, and their penchant for experimenting with mental constructions provide the public prosecutor with proof of their, quote, inherited instinct for dissimulation, end quote. As a psychologist, Wolfen knows that all crimes grow out of, quote-unquote, quite modest beginnings. Normality is the breeding ground of crime. Quoting page 8, A child, likewise, in order to have a change, pretends to have a need, so as to be taken out of the crib, carriage, or chair. In the need for change are to be found the seeds of later bourgeois disorder, which is often nothing other than the acting out of dreams that life simultaneously wakens and prohibits in individuals. With the imposter, the transition from the drive and the dream into crime is accomplished, as is, at the same time, a metamorphosis of the mere crime into an aesthetic phenomenon. That is what evidently fascinates the former public prosecutor so much about his topic. By pursuing criminal psychology, Wolfen coquettes with high culture. He recognises the crime of the imposter basically as a practised piece of art. Of course, in this connection, he cites Goethe, Nietzsche and Lombroso, and again and again he touches on the relations between the talent of the imposter and the artist, not only from the perspective of plagiarism. Swindle like poetry and dramaturgy, is dominated by the pleasure principle. It obeys the magical spell of great roles, the pleasure in playing games, the need for self-aggrandizement, the sense of improvisation. The great impostors build up nothing more than the stages for their roles. To riches and material incentives they have, disturbingly unbourgeois, an illusionist relationship. The money they swindle is never recognised as capital, but is always only a means for procuring atmosphere, a part of the scenery that belongs to the criminal fantastic self-representation. This holds for phony counts, marriage swindlers of distinction, and false chief doctors just as for fantasy bankers, mundane matchmakers, and princesses who are not listed in the who's who of the aristocracy. Wolfen knows how to treat the ambivalence of his material skillfully. As a psychologist, he certainly recognised the role of education in the development of the child's behaviour in play and in fantasy. The innocently, uh, the initially innocent, quote-unquote, talent, first specifies itself in a 
quote, certain atmosphere of lies, end quote, of the educators as a quote-unquote conscious drive. Educators themselves often surround children with an illusory reality made of lies and threats, pretenses and double standards. In such a climate, the jump to a quote-unquote pre-criminal disposition is not great. Cheating, bragging, exaggerating, misrepresentation, flattery, they are the human excitations well known to general psychology from which the transition into the imposter's trade can be easily made. It is also known that in the quote-unquote crisis of puberty, where it eventuates, behaviour patterns can arise that occasionally lead to habitual swindling. Anyone looking for a literary witness's report on such pubertal amoralism and youthful double living can read in Klaus Mann's first autobiography, Kind dieser Zeit, Child of These Times, 1932, how the man man children at the time went about things. The 26-year-old author provides, the title alludes to it, themes for a social psychology of the present, and simultaneously a kind of history of philosophy for the sins of his own youth. He cites Hoffmannsthal's verse, quote, Look out, look out, the times are peculiar, and peculiar children they have, us. End quote. From the erotic sphere, too, phenomena are known that spill over into that imposter, Uh, spill over into that of the imposter, the seducer as Don Juan, as marriage swindler, the double life of upright married couples. Imposters invent criminal variants of what is officially called careers, for they make a career, but in a different way from those who are assimilated. Their motives are quote-unquote peculiar, and are comparable to those of the gambler, the mountain climber, and the hunter, and in large numbers they become unwilling victims of their own talents, among which stand out agility, a talent for languages, charm, the power of seduction, a feel for situations, presence of mind, and imagination. Rhetoricians are represented among them just as much as mimes, and they are often subject to strong autonomous dynamics of the articulatory organs, and to a drive to carry things out that comes from their ability to perceive their own fantasies with an extremely plausible degree of probability and to latch on to all things from the angle of their feasibility. Through their behaviour they are highly successful at extinguishing the everyday ontological boundaries between the possible and the real. They are the inventors in the existential domain. Wolfen now comes to the ticklish side of the topic. He establishes connections to social and political phenomena. He gives the impression that He sees what is decisive, but is not inclined to discuss it. He mentions in passing the swindling side of all modern advertising, and the disreputable side of all modern business world, as such, where there are bankrupt entrepreneurs who, three days before they register their bankruptcy, clothe their wife and daughter once again in velvet and satin, and continue to live in luxury until the police arrive. Wolfen even concedes a certain socio-political protest value to swindling, because it is, is, in fact, not infrequently the children of poor people who in this way fulfil everyone's dream of ascent into the big time. But Wolfen avoids looking at the current social situation and the most recent political past, 
He is silent about inflation, with all its mental consequences. Not only does he pass over the thoroughly deceitful, improvising and hectically imaginative atmosphere of the year 1923, but he also neglects the concrete political application of his cultural criminology. True, he too refers to Napoleon, who according to him was an adventurer and a quote-unquote fool of fortune. But for a German at that time, that was an accepted example, and in any case was part of the general atmosphere. However, the account makes a discreet detour around Kaiser Wilhelm II. Those kinds of associations, at least in public, were not permitted for a former public prosecutor. That this theme nevertheless might also be present as the quote-unquote unsaid is self-evident when connections between swindling and society, theatre and politics are investigated seriously. The acting out of dreams and fantasies and grand gestures since Wilhelm II had become an element of German politics transparent from all sides. In November 1923, a populist association of impostors gave its first unsuccessful performance in the Munich Hitler-Ludendorff Putsch. Thomas Mann, whose Felix Krell, a high society impostor's story, had appeared in the right atmospheric moment in 1922, in its first version, also had a clear view of the political symbolic dimension of the phenomenon of the impostor. From the Italian novel Mario und der Zauberer, Mario and the Magician, 1930. From that novel on, the conventional Thomas Mann stories about the artist and the citizen, the actor and the charlatan, and about the ambiguity of the artist's life which oscillates between people of rank and conjurers in the green wagon, took on new dimensions. He now turned his attention to the political field and made the modern demagogue, hypnotist and mass conjurer recognisable as a twin of the actor and the artist. Thomas Mann's narration represents the deepest probe of literary diagnostics of the times for that period. It explores the histrionic, charlatanistic areas of transition between the political and the aesthetic, between ideology and trickery, seduction and criminality. Later, Mann even wrote a sketch with the provocative title Bruder Hitler, Brother Hitler, where the everyday ontological border between game and seriousness is blurred, and the safety gap between fantasy and reality has melted away, there are relations between what is respectable and what is bluff slackens. To the ambitious, publicity-hungry characters falls the task of demonstrating the slackening. See Cerner's final slackening, discussed earlier. Yeah. I'll read that sentence again without the parenthesis. To the ambitious, publicity-hungry characters falls the task of demonstrating the slackening in the public sphere. This is called a sense for representation. An aspect of illusionism, pose and deception always clings to everything representative and service of the public. Representers are the character actors of orderliness, and with the best among them, Thomas Mann's behaviour permits us to include him here, they openly show themselves to be gamblers. Where insights of this kind are dawning, cynicism cannot be far behind. Manalescu, the imposter of the century, toward the end of his life came up with the equally coquettish and serious thought of donating his unique, or so he probably thought, brain to scientific research in order to complete his existence in the representational sphere. 
as an anatomical psychological specimen his brain was supposed to go down in anthropology. With this in mind, he offered his body to the world-famous criminal psychologist Lombroso. However, the scientist, whose fame was based precisely on the respectable investigation of the ambiguity between genius and madness, giftedness and criminality, probably had no desire to see his fame tainted by that of this imposter. He answered the mortally ill Manalesco on a postcard, Keep your skull. Addendum That today there is not much talk about imposters only proves the onward march of respectability in this area. The uneducated imposters of yesteryear have become the professional imposters of today. What counts today is not the spectacular effects, but the solid facades. Respectability. What was earlier called swindle, today is called expert advice. It is a matter of educational economics. Ah, a question. Is it a matter of educational economics or of technical progress? Today, without an academic education, one cannot even become a swindler anymore. <laughs>